It is a Habit of Grace Decoy Museum original Meet the Carver series. In this episode, Jim Pierce. All right, so this is a pretty cool concept, an idea that the Habit of Grace Decoy Museum has come up with. It's a a series, a sit-down series that takes place on the second floor at the Decoy Museum. If you haven't been to the Decoy Museum, you got to get there. Their webpage is decoymuseum.com. So, yeah, it's on the second floor, and this is the inaugural, did I say that correctly? Inaugural episode of the series uh, featuring Jim Pierce. And something a little different here, too, is this is actually an edited video. Um, we have to f- rewind a second and thank our good friends Scott Moody and John Paxton for taking the time to uh, record all of this. Uh, on January 12th, the year 2020, this past January. A little bit of a issue, the very last uh, 15, 10, uh, I'll say 10 minutes. Very last 10 minutes, uh, one of the cameras stopped, so the audio is not the best. The wireless mic was not working, so when you hear a change in the audio, I apologize for that, but uh, not a whole lot I can do for that right now. So, um, But again, yeah, it's a, it's a cool concept uh, that the Have the Grace Dequin Museum has come up with to record a little bit of history, if you will, as carvers talk about what they love to do and reflect on a little bit of history of uh, what has taken place in their lifetime. So, got all kinds of noises going on here. Without further ado, I'll try it one more time. Without further ado, let's get to it. I do appreciate you listening and taking the time. As always, thinking of you, we are. executive director here. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you to Jimmy and Charlie and JK for assisting us in this process. Um, I am going to allow Mr. Pierce to uh, tell the stories to introduce himself. But without further ado, the legendary Jim Pierce. Well, a lot of you might know me, and some of you might not know me, but I was born in Havre de Grace in 1934 on Stoke Street, and all I did was jump over the fence, and I was at the river. And the town then was nothing but a water town. We had 17 commercial fishermen here that worked the water, pound nets and things, and you never thought it would ever come to the end of the fishing industry we had here and the cannon industry. It all went by just like everything else does. But I'll get back to Harry Grace a little bit because I want to start here. Uh, when Harry Grace was first before the, in 18, I forget, 75, when it was incorporated into a town, it was called Hammertown and then Lower Ferry. And the uh, uh, Upper Ferry was at Labatham, one over the Port Deposit. And Labdom and Port Deposit was larger than Havre Grace because the sailing ships come from there and they built a canal in 1840, opened a canal from Wrightsville 
to Labrador, and then they finished it up and it came open to Harvard degrees. Until that happened, all products like the ships, the barges they were building that come down through the locks to haul grain, coal, and everything, they were being put on sailing ships and taken to all the other places. You know, the Richmond, Baltimore, and Havergrace had 10 coal companies, handle coal. The, the river, you could go on a low tide in Havergrace and I'd take you up there where the Route 40 bridge is right now and show you pollen that were driven back in the early 1800s, cleaned down here to the lighthouse. But they never built big wharves they would just put facer boards on them and catwalks out to them because what would happen? Every spring, we had the spring flushes. And what happened? The ice tore everything down. And in a month, they could, there was enough of labor, they built it right back up. As soon as the spring thaw went, they built them right back up because they had such a work, workforce here. Now. In 1850, there was only 1,300 people lived in Havre Grace. And everybody were watermen. I have paper in here, I got 100, ship, 100 boats from Havre Grace, and the captains on them and everything, from Jess Popper, you name it, that they used to haul products to Baltimore. And then the best thing happened in 1700s, the late 1700s when they put the canal through the Chesapeake City. It was a small canal, but those boats could go through there and go to Philadelphia and Delaware Bay and haul products there. And then uh, most of the people here, uh, they just made their living off the water and hunting. But uh, I want to start, what happened is Everybody knows where the nursing home is in Havre Grace. That used to be a log pond. And they called it a log pond because they put a sawmill in there to saw lumber. Well, in 1820, that sawmill was in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And the man that built it there was cutting the lumber and chained it all up and sent it down the river in the spring when they, with the ice and everything. And it was all busting open. So they had to put a boom crib out here to catch it, and they had to pay four to five cents a board foot to retrieve it, the people to retrieve it. So he moved the sawmill down here three years later and just sent the logs down, and they started cutting right in Havre Grace. But from 1820, and everybody's probably, who hasn't been to Cooperstown, New York, which is 427 miles from here, that watershed of, of the Susquehanna River, they cut everything with white pine. From there, the port deposit, they cut every piece of white pine, just stripped the forest. And they built boats out of them, hauled timber to, to, the, to the Richmond, to all different cities back in. And then the, the trees grow back as hardwoods after the softwood trees. So that's why you look around here, there's plenty of white pine for the duck makers to make wooden ducks because it was everywhere during those times. And uh, then what happened, the canal 
It only operated for about 12 years because every year when they got the flushes in the river and the ice hammocks and stuff, we caved the walls in, they had to refix them and all that. And it was, uh, I mean, people have seen pictures of the Port Deposit, Harvard Grace, I got pictures of Harvard Grace, all the ice chains tore down, everything. But they rebuilt them every year. And that went on up until they built Conway and Dam in 1917. And that saved, you know, started saving the bay. And of course, climate has changed, you know, over the years. Because when I was a kid, the best wintertime sport was, was ice skating and ice hockey and fishing, ice fishing. That's all gone now. Whoever thought you'd think, here it is January, what is it, 70 degrees out? Florida's going to get our weather, we're going to get Florida's <laughs> But that whole Susquehanna Valley was mostly by farmers, but labor force was so cheap here. And then, of course, the town here, when I was a young man, we had five fish houses. There was a hundred, there were 17 commercial fishermen here. And they, all of them lived in nice homes, all on Washington Street and everything, because they were all sea captains. And I got a list in here, could tell you every boat was made. Um, the Maggie Poplar, Captain Jess Poplar was a captain on it. I mean, I got, there's a list of it. Of all the boats, I mean, the Starlight, and there was over a hundred and some boats, not counting the other ones that came up the bay, just hauling products. In the wintertime, they, they gunned. In the summertime, they hauled produce and products to, because around here was a lot of in 1854, Stockholm's Cannery, if you know where uh, the Susquehanna River Railroad Bridge is, that was called, above that was called Little Italy, because Italians settled up in there. But before they, before they ever came over here, that was all farmland, peach orchards. That's why I built the cannery. In 1854, I built the cannery, the canned peaches. And there was apples and peaches, they grew a lot of fruit. And he got in the can business. Then after that, they started tomatoes. And every crossroad had a cannery because they had no way to get it to the market except can it, you know. And I mean, you know, I knew I didn't care which crossroad you want. The only thing they had a cannery. I mean, they scalded the tomatoes and picked them, put them in cans, and that was it. Well, everybody's heard of the red onion, I guess, in Havre Grace. Well, that was a house of pleasure. And it's, Alan Ferrer likes history, and I love, I love it. So he had it drawn up. But it's up on Otsego Street in the corner of Adams Street. But that was Seneca's father's farmhouse. And all up there, that was all farmland, clean on up, going up to 155. With nothing but farmland. With with peach trees and stuff, and that's why I got in the cannon business. And then later on, uh, the Italians came over here and settled that area because of the stonework. They're all good stonemasons. They came here, and they, a lot of stonework was going on. And you know, the quarries were here, poured deposit granite, and you figure all ports, you know, they did all that kind of work.
So that's what brought those Italians here. And then, uh, and Harry Grace, after the canal quit operating because the trains came, steam engines. And uh, everybody wondering about the steam engine. Well, that changed a lot of history. The steam engine, when does everybody think the steam engine was invented? In the 1600s, in Egypt, they developed a steam engine to work water pumps in the coal mines, to pump the water out of the coal mines. But they were very dangerous. They didn't know how to control this, you know, the high steam bores and everything until uh, 1725, and the company's still in business today, Watts. If anybody knows anything about furnaces or anything, if you buy valves or Watts valves and this and there, he made valves that would let the steam off at a certain temperature and everything. And that's when they developed the steam engine. Really got developed in the steam engine. Because, and then, uh, oh, uh, 1788, John Flinch put the first steam bore in a boat in Philadelphia and used it to haul people on the Delaware River from Wilmington to Philadelphia. Everything for like 10 years, he put over 200,000 miles on that boat before it went. And then, but they were always having problems with regulating the steam. And then Watts developed a steam engine. Everybody says, Robert Fulton, you know this here, and different ones. Well, Robert Fulton was the first man to put a steam engine, which was a Watts steam engine, in a paddle wheeler that was commercially used. That's where it comes from. But the steam engine was built, developed back in the 1600s. But then in the 1800s, they learned how to regulate the high pressure bore, the low pressure bore. And what comes along next? The railroads. Baldwin Motor Works in Philadelphia built the first railroad train. Then other people, I mean, you know, it's like anything else. Somebody gets in business, you're a contractor, well, I'll get in the contracting business. You know, any way to make money, they did it. Well, then the railroads come. Well, that took away from all these boats hauling products because those trains could haul more, more weight and everything, and faster right to wherever they wanted to go. And then what happens after that? The trucking industry brings it right to your door. So that's why the history has changed so much there. But now let's get back to the town of Havergrace. When I was a kid, there was department stores here, five good department stores, four hardware stores, three shoemakers, six barbers, 40 bar rooms. <laughs> there it was, 40 bar rooms. And in 1850, when uh, he built the cannery, he built the Methodist church because 
somebody, I mean, the story I got that during the First World War, he was serving peaches and apples, selling them to the government, and so many people got sick off of them from being in the cans because they soldered the cans by hand and it, and it put food poison in them. Until later on, they learned how to put a ring around a can, which he developed. That's where he made his money. But in Harry Grace, we had a movie theater, Bowling Alley, uh, and of course the railroad used to come down Pennington Avenue, and people seen prints of that where it went out on a railroad track across the ice. That was in 1883. But you figure ice to get eight and ten inches thicker better. That's when they used to cut ice here when it was, you know, thick. But those cars weren't that heavy because they're wooden cars or wooden freight cars. You know, they were light. And it used to be the passengers would have to get off at Harry Grace. They would put the cars on a ferry to take them to Prairieville. And the people had to, to get a ferry to go to Prairieville to get on the train. They couldn't, wouldn't ride them on the car there until late 18, in the late 1800s, they let them build a, a, a ferry that would take the cars and the people over. And then later on, the railroad came from Philadelphia to Prairieville. Then the Baltimore line came from Washington, D.C. to Harvard Grace. And then there was no bridge across there. And they built the first bridge. When they built that in the 1800s, then it was a wooden bridge. Then they built a steel bridge. And of course, the one up there now, is they're getting ready to build a new one. Well, I don't know if we'll ever see it, because, you know, but they've been working on it or drawing and had pictures of it and everything. But that railroad has changed everything because you can get on a train anywhere and go anywhere. But now we've lost a lot of railroad because there's a lot of little railroads. Every community had first started waterworks. It was a small waterworks. Now everything the government owns everything. But before people were in that kind of business, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of uh, in Elkton. Um, oh. His father, his grandfather was a lawyer. He made decoys. I can't think his name. I, I know his name just as well because I knew his son because we used to come to Bob Litzenberg. But that family was so prosperous, they ended up owning a lumber yard right where the lumber yard is right there on Main Street and there and uh, coming in on 213 because right below that was the Divers Boat Works, which they built, you know, 300-foot shifts there, and the water was deep. And that family helped more people because they figure if you keep people healthy, they are able to work. But if they're not healthy, they can't work. And labor forces were cheap. And it's the same way around here because we had to, you know, we're divided north and south, and then when the Civil War come along, you know, uh, 
then there's when things really started changing because that's when hunting really started to change. In the 1860s, they were making shotguns, but with domestic barrels. And domestic barrels are strong as steel barrels, because I've been reading the history on it. All your greeners and all of them were made, but they were hammered so fine and welded together by heats that they would last, last them. They've been proof tested and everything. I read all this in history, and they still use them today. But of course now it's easier to make a barrel at a high strength steel or stainless or whatever because they know the easy machine work, you know. But before, and every town, there's just as many gun makers as there was decoy makers. If you read the books, there's a million gun makers and a million decoy makers. And Pennsylvania started it all. They had more gun makers in Pennsylvania than any other state. Then when everybody started going west, they took the Pennsylvania rifle, which they called the Pennsylvania rifle, and turned it into the Kentucky rifle, which that's all it was. And, uh, but Pennsylvania has more rifles. So then you figured hunting to make a living, you had to put either had a flintlock gun or a percussion cap gun, and we came along later. But was an, after in the 1840s, when they started building the double barrel guns, and then they found out they could build a cartridge, a steel cartridge, a brass cartridge to go in that gun. Most of them were still making 10 gauge and 12 gauge. Your big punt guns were just handmade anyway because they were. They weren't dangerous. The only thing they were dangerous about them, if the powder got wet, and the old powder they had back in them days wasn't like the ballistics we have today. The powder would get wet. So every time they went out at the gun with those big guns, they, if they didn't fart, that's why they had a ramrod with a coarse screw on it. they take the wad out and clean that gun out because they were dangerous. Because some put, you know, but they were just roughly made, except ones that were bought. The pretty, most best gun I've ever seen, I'm making a copy of it right now, came from Vanover, Bob Vanover, the Vanover Inn. Bob Vanover had a gun that was made in England, and it was had engraving on it and everything. It was an eight gauge, and I guess I don't know if his father and family used it or not, but uh, that was the only really good-looking, you know, I mean, factory-made gun that I ever saw. And that, of course, if you go to those factories, you see all kinds. But that's what happened. But then when they started making that double barrel, and you figure you're in a sink box out here on those flats shooting ducks, you pull that trigger, and you had to take a ramrod put powder back in it, and they had two barrel, two guns in a box all the time, and sometimes they had somebody there to load them when they had a double box, but you had to do that until the, sh the shotgun shell came around, and the double barrels, you could break them and load them, and they injected the shells, and that all happened right after the Civil War, because so many gun makers 
were trying to get contracts for the government to make guns. The government bought so many different types of guns. You know, this one didn't work. They still, somebody else makes something else. But uh, here in the town, with all these commercial fishermen, and they fished here every, all winter, the ducks were here by the thousands. And this flats out here would handle 200 gunning rigs three days a week, except from November the 1st till January the 30th. Then from there, from January the 30th, they gun on Saturday. They gun Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Then they could gun Saturday, clean up to March. And they set their own laws until the government put laws in effect. And even back then, I got a list here of how many sink boxes there were out on the flats, who owned them, and of course it was a rich man that owned those. They took the sports out. But I got over 100 bushwhackers here. They were bushwhacked, they bushwhacked the boat. The license cost them $5 then. And they killed more ducks bushwhacking, and the rich man didn't want them to gun out. They wanted them to cut bushwhacking out because they were killing their ducks. And it hasn't changed today. Still the same way. The rich man has a place to hunt. You've, everybody else got to find a place to hunt. It hasn't changed. But then, when they started making the steamboats, then all these rich people started having yachts made. And they were gunning from here to the Carolinas during hunting season. They just loved to hunt. And they could afford it. You know, and I... Uh, Around uh, here with the decoy makers we have, we're called Decoy Capital World, and there are so many different makers. We look at a body and say, "Well, this looks like a Holly Taylor boy, this or that." You know, if they could just talk and they could tell us the whole story. But you'll see a different head on this one and that because when. My grandfather was living, and of course I spent a lot of time in Bob McGall's decoy shop. And that's one part about me. I knew Bob McGall, Madison Mitchell, Jim Currier, you know, and I know young Sam Barnes, and most of the carvers around, you know, over. And, and they did one thing for during the off season, they made decoys because they're still buying them. And then really, after they cut the sink box out in 1934, the year I was born, everybody went to bushwhacking. You know, they went to bushwhacking. And then that's when they started refining the birds. Everybody says, well, these are crude. They only painted them black and white red. If a duck darted and saw what they were, they better be dead. But then they started refining you know, like Sam Barnes and all these people are putting feathers on the birds. You know, the angel wings, this and that, trying to refine a bird because the canvas bash came and sit in those decoys. So they had to be more lifelike to, for them to draw them birds. And, but, and you wonder where all of them went to because Every year, if there were 40,000, probably 10,000 got lost because of the grass and storms and stuff. So they were always replenishing decoys, somebody making them. Because when I was 
when I was a young man, in my neighborhood alone, there must have been 10,000 decoys. And I had any pick I wanted. You know what I mean, over the years. Uh, I bought Wood Brothers for $35 a piece and then couldn't sell them for $75 a piece or $50 a piece. Then when they were 65000 I couldn't buy a pair for 70 just I could sell them for 100 You couldn't do it. That's the way things go in life. But whoever knew waterfowl would ever become the history it did because some of these birds have bought more than these fellows ever made in their lifetime or ever thought they were making. Because I'll tell you what, the Holly family, you know, they said it was grandfather of the decoy making here, and they were. And you figure in this town alone, right here where Jim Carrier lived on the corner here, the Carrier house, but right here on this corner right here, these houses all been remodeled. You had Taylor Boyd lived there. You had uh, um, uh, Joe Dye. Then you had, uh, um, I think of his name, and he uh, lived in, next door. And then you went right there, which they just left to the Haverty Grace, the Harry Moore property. And the Moore family, Captain Billy Moore was Bob McGall's grandfather, I mean his father-in-law, and Billy Moore and his grandfather and his father and all of them, they were market hunters. I mean, they, I mean, that's what they did for a living. And when the ducks weren't here, you figure they they gun November, December, January, February, and March. Five months they gunned. Then it was fishing season. Then they fished. And when the fish were gone, the shad fish was over with, they packed fish and everything, they all started hauling freight. You know, the canneries are canning this and that, and they hauled to Baltimore. I read an article where uh, a, a bug eye, two master bug eye, and down Smith Island caught 5,000 bushel oysters in one day. And he sailed from there to the Baltimore Harbor for the, to the cannery. And you know what they got a, a bushel for them? Four cents a bushel for oysters. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I can take a little break. All right. But, it, I mean, it's, it's times of, you know, it's unbelievable what people did back in those days to make a living. I mean, uh, I got pictures where the ice houses would be torn down, and as soon as ice left here, they'd be, they had a labor force. Now it's just the opposite. The labor force costs more than the product. You know, I remember when I went, we would build a house for thirty-five, for twenty-five thousand dollars. The labor was only five thousand dollars. Material was the rest. Now it's the opposite way. You buy a fifty thousand dollar material, but the labor force is one hundred fifty thousand. Things have changed. And whoever knew an automobile would be the price it is a day, that's more than a house is. You know, 
And then having race, if you ride around these towns, I remember when they were building, because uh, I worked at the post office, and uh, every spring they would just bring rabbits, chickens. Everybody had chickens in their yard. And, you know, you're not allowed to have that in, in town anymore. Well, in Harry Grace, you deliver them every spring to people to raise chickens. They bought rabbits. They raised rabbits because it was a cheap commodity of food. You could raise them. They ate pigeons. I eat pigeons. You know, when I was a kid, pigeons were good eating. They were all grain-fed and everything. But that's the way it was. But then, uh, uh, in Havre Grace, in eight, it was 1885, there were so many wild goats in Havre Grace and wild dogs that the town put a dollar bounty on them to kill them. There was that, so many of them wild in the city of Havre Grace. And that's hard to believe. You know, why wouldn't they be killing the goats off and eating them? They tried, but there were so many of them, they put a bounty on them. And then when the homing pigeons came here, when they migrated, people were shooting, were shooting windows out of the houses and everything. And then he put the law, you couldn't discharge a firearm in the town limits anymore. And that's back in the 1800s, because the homing pigeons were killed off in the late 1800s. You know, it's unbelievable. But that's people harvested for food, you know. And then, of course, things have changed now. The only place you can go anywhere to get a screw is Home Depot and Lowe's. And Harry Grace, you had Hex Hardware, Pickcock. You had Lizzie Lumberyard. And before that, it was uh, uh, Coles. You know, four or five people changed hands over the year. And uh, Ed Pearson, decoy maker, he owned the lumber. He owned the lumber yard before he came Lizzie's. And uh, uh, but all that has changed now. And our canneries. Uh, I knew I had a friend that was growing nothing but vegetables in Jersey. He used to collect my decoys and come to the house and everything. And he got out of the raising produce and stuff because. The canneries was costing too much to can, you know, transporting the can. Now he's back, he started growing flowers and everything. Well, then he got out of that because they started bringing these portable canneries right on the trucks. Pull in there and can your stuff right on your farm. Had this, you know, the steamers and everything right in tractor and trailer. So he got back in the canning business because they come right to you can your products and sell it for you. And that's how things have changed. Uh, but out here on the flats, every year these wars tore down, but up to 1850s when the hunting was really got because of the people were getting power boats made and the sports were big around here. I mean, I, I, we have up in my shop, my son can tell you, Charlie, I have a friend, and he's Ronnie Adams. And Ronnie, I met him about six or seven years ago. I knew of him.
but he started doing books. He started doing research. He's got a heck of a decoy collection. And he's doing more history and found out more stuff about the families of Harvard Grace, and not only Harvard Grace, everywhere. Where they came from, what generation they were, who made the decoys, what they did for a living. And he's, one of these days he's going to have a, two boundaries of books, but he has a source of doing. He works at the University of Maryland. And uh, so he's got a lot of archives he can get into, you know what I mean? So he's finding a lot of history out because uh, last night uh, I, I read a, he, he did the article on uh, uh, Al Thomas. Now some of you might not know Al Thomas, but he was a decoy maker and a boat builder. He, his family was in the boat build business. And if anybody knows about Aberdeen Program, you look right down here and you see, if you look through the glasses or anything, you see the boat docks where the civilians had their boats and kept in that air. That was Langley Park. It was an amusement park. That's before the government ever took it up. People came there to picnic on Sunday and fish and rent a boat. And he had a boat yard there and everything. And his father-in-law owned the, the property, and that's what they did to make money. Then his house caught on fire and burnt down, and his boat shop. So he moved to Ab bought a property in Aberdeen, but then he started his boat building business out here at the racetrack. There where uh, Billy James's lives. If you can go right down the racetrack, there's a road that goes right to the water. Well, he was over on a. If you go down, he was on the left hand side. He built a boat yard there, and a railway, and uh, but. He just finished his article up, but he he made decoys, but he worked on boats all of his life, and and that's what most of them did. They had to do something because you know in the wintertime they made decoys, summertime, and then also they had to make repair nets for fishing, and this the fishing industry was unbelievable here because I guess a lot of you have seen the fish floats that would go down the water and they pull the whole scenes right up on the boats and be tons and tons of fish, of herring and shad in them, and rockfish. Now, where I was born at, Alice Mackin, married George Pencil, has a Pencil's Marina. She lived down right down back of me. Well, her father, he had pound nets. He had 13 pound nets off of Prairie Point, and he fished those pound nets, and they would take 20-some ton of perch and herring. One day it would be herring or perch, whatever, they mixed them. Took them to Till Tillman Packing Company to pack the row. And then the rest of the, the fish, uh, we would take and get it, and uh, Russ Phillips was a great water family from down Tillman's Island, the Phillips family. In fact, his boy, son and his nephew and his cousin died on a boat that he had built. Too much ice on it, ice fishing in the wintertime, because he built the first fiberglass boat and everything, big 53-footer. State of Maryland has it now. 
But anyhow, he fished those pound nets and they hauled those fish down and they could only haul so many because they would squash them. You know, they only put so many in a truck. But they did that for two months and hauled fish down there to pack. And now people cut the cans and all this. Now you're not allowed to catch a heron in the bay. You're not allowed to catch a shad. And I remember when you you could dip all you wanted, wash tub after wash tub, and could get, get a penny piece for them. And people smoked them, ate them. But now you go to, you don't have fish markers. We don't have, there's no fish markers left around here. Because you go to a chain store, they got a bakery, fish marker, doctor, eyeglasses, whatever you want. Banking, don't make any difference. So that's how things have changed. But the gunners out here, it was a tough life because it was ice and Jim Currier, he used to ice box all the time. I had his ice box and I gave it to John's mother because it come from his uncle, lived right here on the corner here. And he ice boxed for 15 years, he told me, because he could make more money when the river was froze up and there'd be open pockets, he could go out on the ice and take a sled and pull the box and cut a hole in the ice where a hole was close by and so a half dozen decoys out and get past shooting and get a graphing hook and hook on the ducks and he'd get $7 a pair before he was only getting four, you know, and he'd get $7 a pair. What? Three more dollars is a lot of money. Because I know when I was shooting ducks, it, it made me a lot of money. I mean, everybody wanted them, you know, because they're the famous duck there ever was. Canvas back, but all the ducks were good. Didn't make any difference what you ate, mallard, but canvas back was the biggest duck out here on our flats. And people shot them. You know, you heard stories, they killed 500 a day, one man. You know what I mean? Or And so it's, Hard to believe when they said there were six million canvasbacks out on those flats at one time. And 40,000 decoys and 200 gunning rigs. And they gunned every day they could if the weather wasn't bad. And uh, as, uh, there's a story about Joe Dye. Joe Dye's father, he used to fish uh, gun Henry Diskin. Diskin saw works in Philadelphia, made the hand saws and power saws and all that. And Wallamaker, they were very good friends. They would rent his boat for just to go duck hunting. It was a scow, sailing scow. And then young, young Joe Dye, and we got a tape of this, young Joe Dye was helping his dad with the sink box and everything. And the weather got a little rough and washed over the box. So they lost their guns overboard. And some decoys, you know what I mean? They couldn't go get the decoys the next day part of them. Well, young Joe Dye took his clothes off and dove and got those two shotguns. And then the story goes, that from then on, Joe went to Wanamaker's in Philadelphia 
and got all of his clothes every year free. <laughs> and when his father died, and Joe didn't notice, and this is all true, we got it on tape. Joe didn't notice, but he called Warren Maker and Mr. Diskin that his father passed away. They paid all the funeral expenses and everything and still sent his mother a check every month. He was actually on their payroll 12 months out of the year for over 30 years. He, like, he worked for the company, but he was just a waterman here, but they took care of him. And that's, that's a true story. We got a tape on that when Joe was telling the story of it. And then, uh, of course, all the other families, you know, uh, the Hollies, they had property. They ended up owning property and houses. But when you look at property, the house was only worth $300. You know, it was a lot of money, though, $300. He left the house to his one son, Never left any to Jim Holly because Jim Holly had his own house and a boat works, and he had four hundred eighty dollars in the bank. So that was a lot of money then, you know, back those days. And uh, because I can remember when I was a kid, you know, your parents didn't give you a whole lot of money. Well, after I was twelve years old, they didn't have to give me any money. I could make my own. But you could go to the grocery store and get a box of cereal for seventeen cents. What's a box of cereal cost you now? You know, five gallon of gas for a dollar. So, and you know, most of the people here, you know, everybody had a gill and skiff because they shad fished and they made money during fishing season. And then, of course, a lot of them pack fish away to live on in the wintertime. But the duck hunting out here was, Ronnie has articles that from uh, Warren Street, I mean, uh, Pennington Avenue, if you go down there on a low tide, you can see where the ponds were, where the boat dock was built for the railroad, the cars, the ferry to pick up the railroad cars. Well, Donald Asher, when he was younger, had a barn there. He, he could kill canvasbacks off of there. Right on this point right out of here, Jim Currier had a duck barn. I shot my first canvasback there with Jim Currier. He could walk from his house, go out there in the morning before he even went to work at the post office and kill a couple birds. They were just everywhere. And, uh, and, and the thing was, the government, it's like anything else, once they get their hands into something, it destroys something. You know, um, in the 50s and 60s, there were still ducks around. And then what happened is all the farms around here were dairy farms or orchards. Well, then the little dairy farms were 50 acres, 60 acres, 40 acres, enough to make a living on. They canned their own food, milked their own cow, made their own butter, everything. And then what happened after the Second World War, the farmers come in and bought these little farms because the kids didn't want to farm. They were going to work in a factory where they could make two or three or four dollars an hour. They weren't going to work on a farm seven days a week, 365 days a week. So the grain farmer come in, and a lot of them were 
dairy farmer, but got in a grain farmer. And they started buying the little farms up. Then they took the hedgerows out, and that made the runoff for the water, go and the streams, and everything, all that went to the river basin. And this has filled in out here, and if it didn't have Conway and Dam right now, it would be filled in more. They, and they, you know, here's the government says, we got to dredge it, but there's too much minerals. Where's minerals come out of? The ground. Dredge it. Take it back to Harrisburg and put it in a coal mine. It's still got coal mines been burned up there for 300 years. Fill them back up and take another 75 years for it to get down here. You know, but they, too many people have their hands on it. And, there, and uh, I just seen where, you know, last year they appropriated $2 billion to start the project. The power company did it. Well, we're paying for it. I mean, don't worry. But anyhow, the government still don't want them to, to do it because, well, you got to do something with it. And doing something is better than nothing. And, and that's the problem. But it saved these flats out here because when I was, a, we had shad ditches out here. They called shad ditches. We're 12 feet deeper, better, and that's when that ice hammocks would come down and pile them sandbars out. You have a sandbar, and there were cuts down through there, and that's where the, the wild celery was there. And we could, then when we started body booting, everybody got on a sandbar and started shooting ducks when they cut the canvas backs out because we had mallards, black ducks, and everything. And they were corn fed just like anything else because the fishermen put over probably 50 ton of corn over a year just for the fishing industry to catch carp and catfish. It's not like the day you, they have these ponds, they raise it, and you, you can go to market. Hell, I remember nobody would eat catfish around here. Now you go to market, they're $3, 4 or $5 a pound. But they're all farm raised. You know, but... Uh, the fishermen dropped corn over, and that's where everybody did their night shooting at, on those corn hauls, because ducks love corn. And if you would feed the corn to ducks right now, they'd be more healthier, and we could bring every goose back if we start leaving 20% of the corn out in the fields, just like it was in the 60s. When they started going to grain farming, we had 80% of the geese on the Eastern Flyway here in Maryland. And you could kill all the geese you wanted. Then after what happened, the, the farmer made the fields larger. The combines don't leave a drop of corn in there. The only way you see a corn is might be here and there where they load it on the truck. And it's not the farmer's fault. He's plowing right out to the road for one reason, because it's, it's how much grain they raise. It's volume today. You know, you couldn't have a little farm and do that, because... I have a brother who got into, he was a gentle farmer, but he loved farming. He had over 10,000 acres, and he never farmed an outfit out of Texas farm for him, planted it, harvested it, and everything. He just got a check because it's big business. But uh, that's what changed around here. And then what really changed things around here is they started draining all the potholes and everything up north to, to grow more grain because the world was expanding and you're f 
You know, we're, we're a breadbasket of the world. We produce more food than anybody else. And, and the thing is, it's getting into the market every day. And, you know, where it's going now. Uh, you figure, just us here, every time you go to the store, there's anything there you want to buy if you got the money. And you wonder how it gets to the market so fast. Every day. And that's worldwide. And But then what happened here? What do we have? Mosquitoes. That was helped to ruin the flats. In the 50s, they started coming around. They said, okay, the mosquitoes were so bad. They were. So they started spraying that DDT. They sprayed all the marshes with it, with the airplanes from University of Maryland. They had a contract to do it. And it ended up killing everything. It killed the eagles off. killed the songbirds. It killed all the plants off and everything. And once you destroy it, it doesn't get back. Now, this water out here, it's clear, but it's dirty. When I was a kid, we could go gunning. I could drink. I drank the water out of the river. Never bother you. But, and it only got 65 degrees. Now it gets 70, 80 degrees because you built atomic plants. You got all this discharge from factories and plants and everything, and household and the sewage plants and everything like that. So it's all just revolves around the human nature of everything. And, uh, but uh, they sprayed that DDT here. It killed, it killed everything. And nothing would come back here. It was nothing here. Any, I'm not hard. I'm not kidding you. It killed the grasses, and they and it killed the shad, everything off, and the heron because of the pollution of the water. And now they have a. The state sends every spring, and I live up at Lavender. I go down a dock where we used to haul sand and catch tons and tons of hair. They go out there with a boat and have a trailer with water in them and everything pumps on them. And they go shop fish and pick up 10 fish, put them in there, tag them. They take them down the uh, Potomac River to their fish hatchery and hatch them down there. They don't put them back here in the river here. They put them other places. But the water's too dirty. A muskrat won't live here anymore. And a muskrat was a big business in this, in the state of Maryland. You know, I mean, people trapped because of the fur, but also for the meat. And they were the cleanest animal there is. They would wash its food before it ate it. And everybody trapped for muskrats. They called it marsh rabbit. Used to be able to go in a restaurant down all the... Um, Trying to think of the name of the restaurant um, in, in Delaware. That was on our menu every February. They have marsh rabbit, and even today, there's a oversale in New Jersey. The far company has a marsh rabbit dinner. Has over 300 people go to it. You can't get a ticket to it. I've been to it one time with Summers Headley. You can't. It just goes from family to family. And all our muskrats come from Louisiana. They have a big muskrat cook-off over there. It's, you know, it's, things have changed. But that's what killed the grasses out here, was the DDT.
and Agent Orange or whatever you want to call it. And they made tons of it at Aberdeen, at Edgewood Arsenal, because you had the Atlas chemical company down there, which is still there today, making chemicals. And, you know, we're burning chemicals and stuff like that. And then, uh, of course, the gunners didn't have to worry too much about powder and shot because Baltimore has the greatest shot tower that was ever built is in Baltimore City. It produced more shot for this country than anywhere else. And it still exists today, but it doesn't do anything because they got other ways of doing it. But, uh, and then powder, you don't have to worry about it. Powder, Atlas Powder Company was right across the river at Prairie Point. Before Prairie Point was there, that was, a, that was a powder company. DuPont's had the Atlas Powder Company. It was a Prairie Point. And then after the government bought that all out, and then they turned into a hospital after Second World War, you know. But uh, up to then, you could get people wanted powder. They just went over there, Atlas, because I got wooden shovels. Everybody said, what's a wooden shovel for? To handle powder so it doesn't take a spark. You know, people say, you know, but uh, that was here. But there was coal industry here. The city of Havre Grace had a, a foundry made iron back in the 1800s because they were self-supporting. They had to be, you know. You had, I think there was three gunsmiths in Havre Grace back in those days. I'd have to get the books and show you. But then there was... Like me, there's three shoemakers, four shoemakers in Harry Grace. Now you just throw them away and buy a new pair. You know, but they made a living doing it. And then uh, the farmers would come here to Harry Grace because it was, had good, nice department stores. On Thursday night, they would bring, trick, bring chickens into Harry Grace. And then on Friday night, they'd come shopping. They get flour and stuff because there was a lot of mills around, but they still went to grocery store and bought. You know, there was uh, seventeen grocery stores in Harry Grace. On every street corner, there was a little grocery store in every community. It wasn't a big chain stores till the AMP was the first big chain store to come come around here. Then the Acme, and they've changed hands so many times. Now it's all you have is big chain stores control everything, and then. Of course, with the flats here, there were more gunners came here than anywhere else in the world come here to shoot because of the plentiful of ducks and because of the gun clubs. And they lived in first-class accommodations. Now, everybody knows, I mean, a lot of you aren't from Harry Grace, but right up where Coakley's Pub is, and right across is Lyons Drugstore. The builders built a wedge. That was Bear's boarding house and bar and rooming house. Had a restaurant there in 1840. And you, the rooms were booked from year to year for the hunters. And every house in Harry Grace would take in boarders during the hunting season. And they served meals too. Because of extra income, they made it. And then, uh, but that was a, a hotel. 
Then there was a, four hotels in Havre Grace. They're all gone now. Just like in Charlestown. There's two motels in Charlestown. You know. But they, they were made there for sports. They were built for one reason. The sports come there to hunt in the wintertime, come there to fish in the summertime. When they built this here over here in 1917, that's what it was built for. Hunting and fishing. And a guy named Pearsall built out of Philadelphia and he ran out of money. So DuPont finished it, helping one partners with him. And it closed down in 1965. My brother-in-law and daughter, uh, grand, uh, his wife got married over there and was the last meal served in there because that was a beautiful restaurant in there. And then, of course, it got where it wasn't maintained. The floors were all wood. And the farm marshal had no sprinkler system, the old elevators and all that. So they just sold it for $375,000. And then they put a, made apartments out of it. But we know the grandsons, and they buy decoys from us there. They, from the Knott family, everybody knows the Knott family. They helped, they were in the blacktop business, construction business for years in Baltimore, all over the world. And his grandson is John Kornstein. We had him at the, where's Pat at? Pat knows John very well. John was a grandson of the Knott family. They owned a swan farm down at Rock Hall there. It was left to him and his sister, and he owns it. But, and his grandsons buy the coys off us and everything. But he got married at this hotel here and had his wedding reception here in 1920. And uh, he used to come here because, uh, you know, they had steamboats came here and had a dock here and everything like that. It was fine dining and fine living. But and, uh, but uh, John Kornstein, he, when we were forgetting the museum going, he, he's with a, he's a history bluff on the Civil War and everything. And you probably see him on TV and all that because he's with a, well, I think John's semi-retired now. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a great man on Civil War and down at Jamestown, Museum at Jamestown and everything, he was there. And he came up here and got us started in our museum. I mean, you know, paperwork and stuff like that. But it's funny how things, how things go. But the hotel here stayed open until 1965, and then the city was going to tear it down, but they... It was given to the city by Dr. Foley. He owned it. And then of course, he had nuns were living in there then, but then he built a new house and new quarters for them out of the Catholic Church for the nuns and the school. And he traded the city that property for the property across the street where you see the apartment houses are. He built new apartments there because he wasn't going to invest any money in that in the old place because it wasn't big enough. But then uh, they converted into things. Then at the same time, when this was up for sale, the city was going to have it tore down. 
It was going to cost them $3,700. That's what you could have bought this place for. $3,700. And of course, Alan Fair and Mitch Shank and Donald Ashner asked me, let's start a museum. Because I was involved with the Upper Bay Museum at Harvest Fish House. We started that one in, you know, in 1970, back there. And I was involved in that because I just wanted to serve the history on hunting. And the best part about the Northeast Museum, it's about the watermen. It's hunting, fishing, everything. This is all about decoys. And we're very fortunate to have the decoy makers we had because, you know, uh, you figure the Hollies, Barnes's, Bernard's, Paul Gibson, Charlie Bryant, you know, and when we first started, everybody said, why are you getting these fellows? I said, look, they're still living. They're living legends, so that's why I try to start honoring them all. Then I said, then we can get, then it has changed, and Pat will tell you, a lot has been given to this museum of waterfowl, of the old waterfowl, and good quality birds. But everybody we've honored in here has put a collection in here, and it's one of the finest collections you'll find. And uh, uh, couldn't be located any better. Here's the flats where millions of ducks were killed. And then, of course, after this, what ha happened there is, you know, during the Second World War came on in 41, then, I mean, I remember when I was, they put at the Route 40 bridge, that was finished up in 1941, and then tore the old double-decker bridge down that used to be going across Harry Grace by the American Legion in Harry Grace. And that was built by, and this, five men bought that from Harry Grace, and they charged you 25 cents a toll to go over it and come back. They built a second deck on it. Well, the state found out they were making too much money, so they bought it back from them. <laughs> so then they tore it down, and they were, said they needed the metal, but they spent all that metal to build Route 40 bridge because we didn't have the roadways. You know, you only had Route 7, and Route 40 was the expressway until... After the Second World War, when did Eisenhower come back? Because he'd been in Europe, seen the Autobahns, the roads they had over there, how fast they could go and everything. So that's when they started the road system in Maryland. It's when they built I-95. The first turnpike ever built was in Pennsylvania. And they only went out to the mountains. And the only reason they did that is because uh, uh, Rockefeller started to build a railroad going out there he got into hard rock and couldn't get a tunnel through. So then he abandoned it because it was going to take too much money. Well, then right after that, the state of Pennsylvania went and put a tunnel through there and put the railroad through there. And that's going west. But uh, that's what, uh, you know, things have changed so much like that. And I've, you know, I like to read about the canals and, and uh, the Susquehanna River. It had probably one, and probably in its history, it's probably had 
10 or 12 spillways built in it. And spillways, they, they would stone it up so it would hold water so boats could float because it was too rocky. Up in, you, you see that all up in Safe Harbor, all different places. Then a lot of them have been knocked out now because they got bridges because the only way they had to go across the river, they had to flood it to make it so the boats could go across, you know, from Wrightsville over to, over to there or Lancaster or whatever, you know. So that was all the way on the river. And they, then they tore a lot of that out. Well, my grandfather said when, and he was, he was born in Lancaster County, he said it didn't make any difference. In spring, they could take lumber they had piled up and put a coffin dam across the water to flood the water up and take a barge and if it was put the grain or whatever they were shipping on that barge, if it only went three miles, it was faster than going by wagon and horses because the roadways were so bad. And they, from there they were loaded back on and go somewhere else where they get deep water. They, they just, but the workforce was so, they had so many people here working. I mean, every, every canal, you figure they built, I don't know how many canal boats, and a lot of them were built for a canal up there. And they were built by slaves Pennsylvania had slaves, but they used slaves to build them. But everyone come down here, they couldn't take them back up the river. They tore them apart and built the houses out of them or built boats out of them. They used all the timber. You know, and uh, that's what they did with the pines. And then, of course, now everything grew back to hardwood and things like that. But uh, they shipped. I had records that I gave them to Cedar County Historical Society, I got from the Barneses, uh, even back in 1863, everybody, if they went out on a, here, they know where the battery was. The lighthouse is on a battery. Well, that was a big fish compact. It was all built up and had, they raised shad and heron there. The water was so fresh they could raise them. They raised them because they knew they had to replenish them. And they did. There was a big fish hatchery right at Charlestown, the barns had. And they knew if they took fish out, they had to replenish them. So they, they built, and the water was clear. Because I worked on a project in 53 at Abbott's Wharf, and we would take a Rochad, who was ready to spawn and spawn it and put melt on it. And these, we used to make little uh, fish boxes about this side and put uh, um, cheesecloth on them. And then six weeks, there'd be fingerlings. We just took the boat hook like that and they swam out. We'd do it again during the whole season. But the river was pure. Now nothing will grow in this river. I mean, uh, I haven't seen a much. I've seen one muskrat this year in this river. And anywhere you used to see a, a water hole, There'd be a mushrag growing in there. You don't see it anymore. It's a shame. But uh, this, this was a great project I worked on because it served the history, the Upper Bay Museum. And you have, you know, we're fortunate in Maryland to have what we have. 
we got a great waterway, and uh, it gives a lot of pleasure to people and everything. But way back uh, in Baltimore City alone, because that's where all the industry was in the cities. That's why they built row houses. Everybody worked in town. The companies were in town. Then after the Second World War, they started building out-of-town factories and stuff. And the people started moving out in the country and stuff. And, where. and then the, what happened, that, they become slums and stuff. Because the industry's not in town anymore. But they built outside. Well, now you see these industrial parks everywhere. Especially since they built the road system we have 95. I mean, when you, when you can get a, you take a, a, in two days from Louisiana, the Fulton Fish Market, a truckload of fish can come up there in two days or shrimp. It's unbelievable. They just change drivers. One guy will drive it to uh, the North Carolina or whatever, or Georgia, and another guy pick it up. And it's unbelievable to get stuff to the market. When did you get started making decoys, and with who? Well, I was the neighborhood I was raised at. They were all hunters, and my uncle was a gunner and had a uh, gun and scow and everything. And you could gun anywhere, you know, up the river, anywhere. There was ducks everywhere. So. Of course, Harry Jobes lived right up the alley from me, with his grandparents, and uh, we were always on the water doing something, you know, but we weren't allowed to have guns, and then when we were 14, we went and bought our own guns. We'd go to Murray Lauder and get a many, he had a second floor, he just had, I mean, any gun you wanted, people bring them in there, and we could get a gun from him. and. and we had to bring him ducks back to pay for them. <laughs> or shells, he sells nickel shell or $2 a box. So I said, I'd take a box, but I'll just only take five with me. <laughs> but Murray Lauder was a, a man, he had a general store in Harry Grace. But he had all the hay barns at the racetrack, you know, for the horses and stuff. And Murray owned a lot of property in Harry Grace. And he was good to the town because he's helped a lot of people. But he, when I was a kid, things were, there were plenty of ducks still around because of the fishermen dumping that corn over and, and, you know, and they were coming here for that feed on that corn. Well, I was 14. And I just moved from, uh, I lived on, born and raised on Stoke Street, and uh, Dr. Steiner, doctor in Harry Grace, delivered, delivered all of us, the six of us. My brother was named after him, and uh, he would come to my mother after he went to the hospital every day, and come to my mother for breakfast. And he, with my grandfather, my grandfather would, would come up to have breakfast because he was staying with his, his daughter down across from Bob McGall's house. And uh, so, of course, I was going 
Nelson Bernard was four, four doors from me. I was up in his shop. You know, uh, Johnny Boyd, he made some decoy pigtails and stuff up in the loft. They had a carriage house there and a big family. But I went down to, I worked for Jim Currier. I mean, we were working at Mitchell's, but Jim would let me, when I was 14, he hired me to help deliver partial post on Christmas time because they would get me real busy. And then in the spring of the year when we got to, everybody with their rabbits and chickens for their, you know, because everybody had a chicken house in their yard and everything like that. And I would work there. Then when I was 16, uh, I could drive. Well, then on Saturday, he let me drive the partial post truck during the off season because everybody worked for the post office could only work 40 hours, they had to have comp time. They couldn't get no overtime at all. And then you had to wait till somebody died to get a job. So I started going down Mitchell's, I was 14. I stopped around Ed Sampson, knew Ed's, you know, the family, the boys and stuff. See Ed and Ed working on heads and stuff. So I went down Mitchell's and Bill says, here, you're not gonna stand around, get that broom, start sweeping up. They start sweetening up. Next thing they put a spoke shave in your hand. Spoke shave is stuck. And then I started working for Mitchell. And then, of course, Jim was always making decoys as parts for something to do, you know. And his shop was right down here in the alley right here where they built this house. And, uh, of course, when I got out of school, I went, I was spent a year at the post office because I got it out of school and I had my license and everything. And when I was working at Mitchell's, and Jim says, I need a substitute carrier. Well, Mitchell got mad at him because I was working for Mitchell making decoys all year, you know what I mean? And uh, we we're doing cripples there. So I went to work for Jim for 87 cents an hour at the post office, only making 50 cents at Mitchell's. So I, uh, we had five mail routes in Harry Grace. So my job was Monday I carry one route, Tuesday, because they had to have a day off, I mean, you know, comp time. And then Saturday, I run a partial, well, I was making time to hand. I was making more money than the regular mailmen. And they were getting, they got, they were getting mad because they couldn't work in it. Well, but I could work because of part-time help. Well, I went down and took a test. I passed it. But you had to wait till somebody died. I'm not kidding you, in the post office then. Because, you know, that was a lifetime job. So, one day, Ed, Abe Davis, he worked for a phone company, and Billy Bauer said, hey, Jim, could I put an application for a phone company? He said, we got a job open. Go out and see Bill Sites. So I went out to telephone exchange. Well, telephone exchange was right where my, right next to where I lived on Franklin Street where I had my decoy shop. And everybody sat on my porch. Stone st telephone exchange was right on Stoke Street then. So uh, I saw Billy and he said, yeah, he says, uh, I need somebody to drive a truck, deliver phones and stuff to different CEOs like Churchville, Darlington, you know, the small exchanges. Because they had guys just, you know, there. So I said, but I can't come to work now. This is October. I said, he said, why? He said, I got I to have two weeks off. 
Two weeks off for what? You ain't got a job yet. I said, well, I don't care if I get a job or not, but I'm going hunting the first two weeks. <laughs> and I did. So then I, after I, after, you know, come in on November the 9th, and it was Harry Lincoln fellow, my brother, Emerson Mitchell. We had a, what we call orange boat, orange chief. We bushwhacked. We used to gun for just two weeks, stay out there, come in at night and stuff like that, but we still gun for two weeks straight. So I took my two weeks gun and, uh, so then I went to work phone company, and I said, well, I'm telling you what, I don't know if I get two weeks next year or not, but I'm taking two weeks next week when gun season comes in. <laughs> and from then on, I did. <laughs> but that's how I got gunning. But my uncle gunned, and he lived on a boat. He, was a, he, had, he had the King Tut uh, gunning scale, and him and uh, uh, Wright's, Wright's Trailer Park, his, his father had a farm down there. Those two gone together, you know, back sink box days and everything. Well, he had opened the hatch up, there was 500 decoys down there. If you wanted decoys, you just took them. You know, the old strings on, they break cotton strings and stuff. So if it floated away, you could go in there and get another one. <laughs> but there were so many decoys around here because I went to work for a phone company. I worked there for a year. And then I was 22 and I got drafted in the service. So then what happened is then uh, I got sent down to boot camp, went through there. Well, then I, I, I was in the Signal Corps. So uh, they were going to send me to Fort Benning. Well, we, another fellow was in school uh, taking training. We came up to get our orders. And a fellow he knew he went to college with was there, a boy he was going to college with. And, and he was from Connecticut. He says, Mac, what are you doing? He says, yeah, they put me in a signal school. He says, uh, we're supposed to go, order says we're going to go to Fort Benning. Why, you want them changed? We said, yeah, we're as close as we can get home. He said, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. <laughs> so he changed our order. So I went to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey for uh 15 weeks signal school and that's how come I uh, I knew I knew Summers Headley because he used to come to Madison Mitchell's shop and he was and uh, Johnny Hillman they're probably two largest decoy collectors around and Norris Pratt you know they really had some collections but uh and then I was working away when, when I was a phone company. I was pickup man. I go to Lennon Steve Ward's shop. I go to uh, Cigar Days and pick birds up. They wouldn't have to dry down because the roads weren't that good. So I was a pickup man. And for Mort Kramer, you know, like that, because they were always dealing in decoys. Well, anyhow, when I went to Europe, I, I, was, I went to Washington. The Pentagon, I said, man, I got it made. I mean, well, I was down there for two weeks just getting home. I saw around. I saw to come down called my MOS. You're going to Stuttgart, Germany. So I said, report to Fort Dix. So I went to Fort Dixville. Guy says, you ain't shipped me out for two weeks. Go on home. So I went on home. <laughs> I spent two weeks home. Then when I was, was in signal school, we went to school 4 o'clock to 12 o'clock at night. 
eight o'clock was dinner time because it was 24-7 the schools were running. And they were all civilian instructors. So on Friday night, you took a phase test. And if you failed, you dropped back one course. If you failed, then you, you're out altogether. Well, every Thursday night, everybody took the phase test. And you got done 8 o'clock. Well, we could leave at 8 o'clock. Well, I would leave at 8 o'clock, stop at Coast Neck, where the bar room right at the front gate, pick up eight pony of roller rocks, and that would last me to get down to uh, the Lighthouse Inn. It was the Lighthouse Inn then. Down here at the Lighthouse when it was a bar room. And I'd get there quarter after seven, and everybody would be in there watching Gunsmoke <laughs> on Friday night. And that was my routine for the 15 weeks. <laughs> so then I ended up going to Germany and I uh, worked in embassies. So I, I, I visited 23 countries. I mean, I was very fortunate, 23 countries. And I had an older, I have a brother that was in the Air Force and he would fly over twice a month and he, he'd fly into, and he brought me, he, I, they, those guys in the Air Force, they would fly to Newfoundland, pick up lobster. We have a lobster bait. They want a steak. They went to Texas. They got steak. I wanted crabs. They got crabs from Sambo's over in Delaware. Put them on a plane and fly them over there. We have parties all the time. <laughs> but I was very good, you know. I mean, I had, I had pretty good. I, but then. When they wanted you to sign back up, I said, no, I already got a job with a phone company, and I come back here. Well, then that's when I started really getting, because of back with the phone company, we had cedar poles everywhere, you know I mean? We were replacing cedar poles. We were put back in the 20s and 30s, you know, replaced them. So I was getting all the cedar poles. I wanted to make decoys. So I built my own shop, my brother and I, and... I was turning the decoys on Mitchell's lathe, but carved my own heads and putting them together and everything on Stoke Street, but still working for Mitchell's. Well, I spent 17 years at Mitchell's helping me, and I even helped him after that, even, you know, going out on Saturday and head and stuff like that. But I always liked to hunt and fish. Well, when I got married in '55, uh, and I was going with my wife, I said, well, there's one thing I like to do, and that's hunt and fish. And you're not going to interfere with that. And she'll tell you right now that that's what I told her. And she never interfered with it. Because I hunted and fished, and I only worked till I was 55. I had put enough money away, and I had a little construction company. I made a few dollars, and I invested it. And I had enough to live on, and I got into the decoy business. But then, Five days a week or better, we went, I went hunting and fishing. And then when Charlie Bryan retired, him and I were always, didn't all you had to do was pick the phone up and call Charlie. He says, we're going fishing tomorrow. He says, we're at when? That's all he ever said, we're at when? And he'd be there an hour before you. And we used to go, when dove season come in, we'd gone down to St. Michael's like We knew, had friends down there. I had a place down there. So we got all those estates down there. Well, of course, our friend, Kenny Bryant, he had a, a, 
nursery business, but he took care of all the estates down there. I mean, Caterpillar, Tractor, you name it. Uh, Pat will tell you, <laughs> right off the greens, we've shot <laughs> geese. <laughs> Rennie Gay and all of us, we were, you know, we'd gone down there. Well, you could shoot as much as you want. And Kenny used to say, of course, he's a multimillionaire. He said, yeah. he says, whatever your pocketbook can afford. I said, it's not what my pocketbook can afford. It's what your pocketbook can afford. <laughs> but, you know, and so we gunned down there. But, and then, I mean, I, I had a good decoy business going, and I had a fellow working for me, helping me and everything. But then when my son Charles, he got out of, he had finished college up in 91, and he came home, he says, I'm not going back to school. He's going to go get another degree, you know, more on his degree. So he had a degree in corporation management and finances and everything. So he says, I'm going to stay here and make ducks with my dad for a year. Well, he's been there ever since. <laughs> and he's a good decoy maker. He can do it all. He is one of the fun, I'm kidding you. But uh, when we've had a lot of fun because he's done a we. We got to go fishing together. We hunted together. We dove shot. We did. We did everything together. And we're just, you know, and we've had a great relationship. And then, of course, J.K. used to like to hunt. Well, he doesn't. He because he was a, a dirt man. He's he rather digging dirt and he works construction, you know. <laughs> but uh, so that's how I got into the coy business because there was a a way for me to subsidize my income, and it was. And we made decoys for the rich man. The poor man made his own decoy. He, you know, you like your dad. He'd take the cedar poles down and get them turned. Mitchell, make me some decoys. That's how he got his decoys. But, I mean, the rich man come up there in September and wanted his decoys. We put them in the back of his car, and he paid Mitchell for decoys because the local guys would get Mitchell to turn them. You get Barry Moats or anybody to hit them, and Elmer Simper, anybody would paint them. I used to go in basements and paint duck people's ducks after season for next year. Well, that's the way it was because you couldn't, you couldn't find a place to gun from Conway Dam to Cape Charles on either side of the bay back in those days. I mean, there was guys hunting everywhere. And I, uh, and then, and of course, the Western Shore was a lot of sandy bottoms, so they didn't have a whole lot of grass except certain places. So they all baited. I never... I was gunning down a, a, a Naples with a, a, a doctor, or a doctor and a lawyer, and a friend on the filling station who used to work for, did work for a telephone company and everything. We were down here blind and shooting mallards. And of course, they had corn down there. Well, then a DNR come there, they dredged. They found one. Ear a one pebble of corn. And he says, you guys are baiting, so he gave us tickets. So it was about two months before we went to court. So we go to court. Well, here comes John, the lawyer. He, here he comes with three mallards. All his back. Come in, and he says, uh, Judge, he says, they got us, they said, we were baiting. He says, but we are shooting mallards, we just, and that's all we are getting. And he says, uh, 
you know, Mallard's always got corn in them. He took out Mallard, went like that, corn just rolled out of his mouth. The judge says, case dismissed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he showed him there. He said, that duck dropped that, those ducks could have dropped that corn down there. <laughs> so I've had, no, I've had a great life doing what I want to do. Anybody got any other questions? How many decoys do you think you made in your life, Jimmy? Oh. I don't know. I mean, 70 years of making them. Maybe half a million. Because I used to, uh, you know, when, when we were making decoys, we got like like Harry, and, and when we started our own shops and everything, we had other people work for us, just like Mitchell. So, during hunting season, you're making two and three thousand decoys for people. I mean, you know, these gun clubs around, they buy 500 this or that. And so, and you couldn't get enough decoys made, really, at the time. Because I used to, um, uh, um, down on the Potomac River, was uh, Mitchell sold them decoys. And, they, and Mitchell says, I can't handle it all, or you start doing it. Well, heck, I used to send them in the fish barrels. Just take fish barrel and put them in a paper bag, put sawdust in them, and then just put a piece of uh, uh, wreath over them and a rim and ship them freight. Because we had a freight train, would go out of being a railroad, had a freight yard, you know, station and everything. And in Pennsylvania, you took them up there and shipped them down there to them. They never got damaged or nobody take them. And uh, in fact, uh, I made them over six or 700 decoys every year, 50 of this or 100 of that. <coughs> then when Charlie got out of school, he was in the shop and a fellow called him and the fellow was in the flooring business. And he wanted, said, Charlie, I got a bunch of birds of your dad's, you want to buy them. Well, of course, he was only paying back in like $7 and a half a piece. He wanted $200 a piece for them. <laughs> Charlie said, what? <laughs> of course, Charlie has paid a lot of money for some of my birds, but yeah, he wanted $200 a piece for them. But the man ended up having over 600 a quid, but he sold them all. I mean, you know, it's, it's unbelievable what, and there's, Something you don't, you, you know, I've, I've been doing this all my life and everybody else has been interested in it. Always something comes out of the woodwork, somewhere, someday. You never, you think it's all, you've seen it all, but you don't. You know, it's unbelievable. Because I had fellows bring me ducks in the shop. Joey will tell you, people just bring ducks in. Uh, and you thought you seen, you know, they're all gone, but they're still in somebody's cellar or loft or something. Not only that, fishing tackle, anything like that. It's still somewhere tucked away, you know. But uh, it's been fun. And the, the no names that we can't name probably are worth more than the ones we do name because of the makers. 
You know, we never knew all, only the makers we knew was by word of mouth and the, the old timers that told us over the years. And, you know, uh, you, you've seen all, yeah, you, we, we'll look at a decoy, you can put 10 of us together. Well, that looked like a Hollywood's got a sandbar head on or this or that, you know, they're mismatched. But that's what happened because they, they were a, a tool to work with. They didn't care if the head got broke. They just cut it off and put a new one on or patched it up. It, it had to draw a bird in for them to shoot. They wanted something to eat. You know, and uh, it's uh, like uh, Bob McGall. When he was born, of course, his grandfather owned the island. He owned 700-some acres down on Basuti Island. And he had the ferry that went across. It was the cut was bigger than what it was there, but he had a ferry that went across there. And of course, uh, he had what they call the upper farm, which became the gun club, and he had a lower farm, and uh, it had orchards and stuff. Well, he had all the, he had all the gunning rights for that place, all the fishing rights for that place, and everything. Plus he farmed, but he had some money because he had, Bob was raised till he was three years old by his grandfather and his mother lived there. His father had a farm in Aberdeen, farmed it there right where the railroad is. All, all that was farmland, that was his father's farm. And uh, then when his grandfather died when he was three years old, so of course, they sold the farm because there was two boys. He had an Uncle Jim and then his father. lived at Habergris. So they sold the farm and, and back in them days, usually sold them at the train stations because it was too rough the roads to go to the buggy to the courthouses and everything. So, so the auctioneers would always do it at train station. So, um, the farm bought $17,900. That's what they did. They started a gun club there. Um, I'm trying to think, what's the name of the, John, what's the name of the road that goes up uh, in Aberdeen, where McDonald's and everything, where it used to be a sand and gravel pit and everything. What's the, what's the name of that road, Pat? You talking about Beards Hill Road? Not Beards Hill. Paradise? Uh, they used to live right there. I knew the, I knew one of the daughters, granddaughters, because she worked for a phone company. They had built a house there, but he and her, her great-grandfather bought the farm from uh, down the island and turned into a gun club to the government, you know, to know. But uh, then he moved to Harry Grace, but he, he lived in, he really lived out in Hagerstown and he was in the National Guard. And he must have been married then because it had, he had a marriage license. And when he got his discharge, his wife's name was on everything. And then she must, they must have moved back here to her father's house because uh, he got out of the National Guard like six months earlier because I don't know it was a hardship or something. 
Hindu working as a shorts man on the side selling shorts. Then he moved back to Harvard Race. Well, then I kept, I get, when he got, I guess that's when he really got into decoy business because, you know, the Moore family, that they were decoy makers. You know, Harry Moore here and his brother, brother and his grandfather, all of them, they were watermen and gunners, sink box gunners. So I guess that's when he started making decoys. Matt Mitchell got into business because when he got out of funeral business, it wasn't nothing to do, so he started to work for Sam Barnett, which was related. And then Sam died, and Mitchell ended up with his orders to fill. And as he started Mitchell in his decoy business, then he had to learn how to paint because Lillian Barnes did all her painting for him years ago, and she got married and moved out. She said, I ain't painting any more decoys. <laughs> and then, Captain Billy Moore come down and showed Mitchell how to paint. Told him to go down to Bunnings and Baltimore, buy the paints and all that, and showed him. And Bob come down to the shop and saw his father off in there showing him how to paint. Well, that was competition. And you know, they lived in the same house for over five years and never spoke. <laughs> because of uh, his father law was showing him how to feather and paint ducks. And that was competition. Mm. Well, are weird. <laughs> they are weird. There's a lot of them around weird. <laughs> Anybody got any other questions? So Jimmy, you talked about the Bayview, you talked about the uh, furnace building here and the city selling it for thirty seven hundred bucks or putting it up for sale for thirty seven hundred bucks. But you need to tell everybody where you took this building when you got it to where it is today. Well, it was fun. I mean, uh, it just happened that we had a good governor. The building was set here. And uh, when they came and they asked me if I'd do it, I had some friends over because we had, I was in the Harshie Construction Company and I had some friends in Philadelphia I knew were engineers. And, I said, well, let's see what the bill will hold. Well, of course, I've been in it when I was a, when I was a kid. We used to sneak in here and go swim in the swim pool. This floor right here is all concrete. It had netting around. It was a badminton court, tennis ball court, and the women's sun buddies up here. And it came up the steps up there, and it had drains all in it. Well, I brought the engineering company down, and we dug around a foot of there, and he says, yeah, these footers are good. It's good concrete and everything. They walked underneath the, you can go underneath the swimming pool where it is. Check that. Well, then Jay came, my boys, and my nephew and all us. We got from Harbor. Harbor had a boat yard up there. We hauled. How many tons was it, Jay came? We got 15. It was 15 tons. I got one out to the block company, remember? And I got the, the pallets of concrete. Yeah, and I brought the crane down here and we set it up on the, we had to set it up on the beams. Right up here, over there where the beam was, where, and the, where the uh, government flats is, they put a scalp up there and put a scale on there. And we put 15 ton of concrete right on a spot they set for us. And that steel went down and they measured it and it went back up. So it was strong. And they, and, they, and they read and did the rule book and all that, and 
He said, you can put five stories on this building if you wanted to. That's how strong it was. And this was all hand poured, the steel and everything. So then we started on it. And of course, Maz was, Mitchell was behind it a lot. And of course, we had a good mayor, a good governor, and Ari Rearman, who had good, you know, John Cox and all his boys, they all were for us and helped us. Well, we put in for a grant. When we started, we put the first equally show on. And we started this thing in 80, but we never put a first equally show on in 81. It was very successful. And it was, of course, we were just using the, the Catholic Church, the basement, and the school we were using, you know, the high school, and everything, and just kept expanding. And then the next day we were in all the schools, and we were like, then uh, what happened there was we started having Friday night parties. And of course my brother, Bob Gall, and some of the fellows in town would do all the cooking and stuff. We had it to far house, and it just got so, we were selling out, 300 people would come to the thing. You know, we had plenty to eat, and you name it. And it grew, and, and then we got the first floor done, which I was very fortunate. They let me do the project, uh, but the city was overseeing it. And uh, but we were writing our own checks, you know, through the city. On so, of course, I begged, borrowed, and steal everything I could. I mean, I'm, I had some good friends like Cardi Turner, you know, uh, uh, Phil Powell. Uh, Kenny Stevens, he was my concrete man. And he smelled like, I used them all. <laughs> but, and then we got, and then uh, I had Flip Wilson, he just passed away, and uh, he did a lot of work downstairs. And I was buying white pine, just white pine floor, and some of the stuff. I got that from Coach Brothers, got a deal with them in white pine, and they were making all homes and everything. So they gave it to me at cost. And shit brought it down here for me because the new ladder didn't very well. And we put white pine floor here, but the high hills made it rusty for them. <laughs> but, uh, but it's been a great project. But Donald Schaefer is behind it. We went to see him uh, with Bill Cox and everything, and we put in for a $500,000 grant, half a dollar. And that's what he told us to. He said, but you're only going to get about three, 300 or 375,000. So that's what they gave us. They gave us 375,000. Well, we did the first floor and got all finished. And I was fortunate because I had, uh, I was selling the coins to Gibson, uh, U.S. Gibson Company. The president was in Dallas. And he'd gone with some friends of mine. Uh, Bob Bell was Savannah National Bank president, and they'd come down to South America. And they used to call me and make, I used to have to send cinnamon teal to them, and blue wings and pintails, 18 each every year. I just mailed them to them, they pay me, and everything. So I called him up and says, oh, I need some drywall. He says, drywall, how much do you need? I says, I don't know. 
Jones this size, and well, Coach see Chuck, and he knew uh, Chuck Lenny. Donald, a fellow in Happy Race, I knew his family was here. Donald worked, Donald's brother worked with me, so I went to see Chuck, and he was a drywall business, sell drywall, you know, the, all these developments and stuff like that. So he come to major and says, Yeah, hey, we'll bring a tractor and a tractor trailer loader. So he did, and brought it over there. He says, Who's gonna who's gonna put it up? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so um, he said, Well, I got a friend. The fellow was in the drywall business, finishing business. He had like 75 people working for him, but he was making 50 cents a sheet and not even touching it. You know, and these developers all over the state of Maryland, Washington, and everything, and they were selling drywall and that. So I went to Clarky Turner and said, Clarky, you know all the lumber yards. I need, I think it was 482 to sixes to frame the walls up downstairs. You know, we had to, because it was just a concrete building. And uh, they got, I got all the, all of that for nothing. So I had fellows, my nephew and them, they framed it up, Phil Powell home, got a frame, and then I went to a party up this with Larry Grace. He said, come on, you're on this party. Well, this man was in the drywall man. He says, yeah, Chuck told me about it. You wanted home and finish. They did. They come here and come in and finish and get a, a scent either. So then I needed to paint <laughs> So what I did, I just have a, a fellow work for me up in a decoy shop. He lived up in Elton and he came here when Castro took over Cuba, uh, Gomez. And, his, and he, family settled of an Elton in Newark because he went to work for General Motors. But they, his grandfather was a big contractor. They took all of his money and everything. They came to this country with nothing. And uh, Henry, oh Henry was a, he, he worked for Bill Pease. He worked for me in the shop. And he, he, he was a good, and he carved now a little bit or anything. But uh, uh, he says, Who's going to paint him? His brother did painting on the side, you know, or didn't have anything to do. And he says, Why don't you come up to the company? We've got 35 men come there every day, just sets in the break room in case somebody gets sick on the line, you know what I mean? Because it's all you. So I went up there and saw their boss and says, How many boys do you need? I said, Well, I don't know, tell Henry. So Henry says, Well, I'm really going to need five of us to paint this place. Well, I went every paint dealer I dealt with, and I got paint from everybody I could. You know, they got white, and then we, they painted cream, they painted over. Well, they painted this whole building out, it didn't cost us one cent either, because I just used to I could. So they just couldn't, we understand the stairs part. But when we got over the downstairs part all up, and of course we built Mitchell's shop in there, it was a step up in there where I used to have a, a car wash and uh, we built Mitchell's uh, Bob McGraw's shop in that area and of course then when we remodeled it they took it all out and changed it all around but uh, 
They just couldn't believe what we do with three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars made a million dollar building. Well, then we didn't have enough space, so I said we need to put a second floor over here. So we go to Dollar Services. So I already got called around and to, to Onco and different ones and Gulf State out of, out of uh, Mississippi gave me the best price was. Was I don't know, sent me some thousand dollars to engineer. I wanted an engineer, you know, to put support beams where they were and put the building up. Well, they did. They came up and put it all together for us, and then we finished the inside. I did the same thing. I needed two or four, two or sixes, and then we built most of the cases ourselves in here, except for the class cases. But I built those cases there, Mitchell's case there, and then, of course, we ended up putting the stained glass windows all around, and we made money off of that because we had a person doing it, and everybody wanted to put some, one in honor or somebody in here, you know, Shai, Brian, or Father, and stuff, so we ended up putting all the stained glass windows. And then, of course, it's been very successful because I said one thing when I got involved. The museum going to stay open seven days a week. And he said, what? I said, yes. I said, I'll tell you what. Because when I was younger, my wife and I traveled a lot. And I loved to go to museums. And I'd go to these museums that are closed. Open Friday, 2 o'clock. Open Saturday at 1 o'clock. Well, people are traveling every day. They could be there all winter. So I said, you keep the doors open. And I'll say one thing. I mean, it's been, we've had some tough times here. Pat, I'll tell you, because Pat was been present here. He took over after I left here, and Doc Carey and everybody, and he and Jeannie's done a great job, but it takes a lot of money to keep this place open. But the doors have never been closed. People can come here anytime and see, get in here. And that's the best part about a museum, is it being open. I mean, you might not only get one customer a week, but if you want them to come and say what you got there, you got to be open. That's the problem with the, the Upper Bay Museum now. That's a shame because when I got involved with that, it's a very fine museum because it's a water museum. It's got fishnets, everything, it's a, and, we did, and they've done a great job on it. But they don't have the support of the town and the, the people to keep it open. And it should be open because it's a very fine museum too. You know, and of course, you can ask St. Michael's, you got the Maritime Museum there. Well, of course, they got a lot of heavy pockets down there. So they, can, they really did something. I remember you could point half the land there for $10,000 when it was a fishing village. Now you can't even touch a half. Uh, place to put a tombstone for that. <laughs> yeah. But it's been interesting. Do we have other questions or we are at uh, 8.15. So are there other questions? Burning questions for Mr. Peters? How about we close with one of your most famous and funniest, most enjoyable gunning stories, Jimmy? Bear. Well, that was the last night I <laughs> <laughs> No, I, you know, back then we had, we only had one game warden in town. 
And uh, he had the canvas back, a boat, they had tunnel stern, so it could run across the grass and everything. And of course, when it froze up, he come and lived in the Bayou Apartments there. It was Odin King. He was an outlaw back in his day, you know. His whole family were. Keen family, you know, commercial fishermen and garden and everything. Well, anyhow, uh, of course, back then they kept the boat in the boathouse down there. The dock was still there, and he lived on the battery during the hunting season. Stayed right on the battery, him and his wife. I mean, he had everything there, of course. And, but then we had a sanctuary pulled up where he couldn't go to certain places in the battery and stuff so the ducks could rest and stuff like that. Well, then, Odin wouldn't bother anybody, you know, about if you had a good day, you shot. The other day, you didn't get any ducks, you know, I mean, it wasn't, you wanted some days you did and some days you didn't. Well, anyhow, I've gone off the battery and just leave a couple pair of cans backs hanging there. He knew where they came from. <laughs> when he was living in the Bayview, we killed ducks. Always left him a few pair of ducks. Because everybody, every lawyer, doctor and everything wanted canvas vaccine. And Judge wasn't going to lock you up because we were feeding him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kid you know, And we killed, I mean, the old timers killed, it was a rough life, but when we were gunning, we had it easy because uh, uh, we had automatic shotguns. You know, they didn't have all this. And we had extensions on them. And I could take three guns and we killed 99. I don't know how many birds we killed, but we picked up 99 birds. We wouldn't pick up the other one because said it would be bad luck for 100. Bill Wyatt and Bobby Walker and myself up underneath the Pino Railroad Bridge. And we had a fellow that was railroad cops used to walk. You know, he used to walk the railroad bridge all the time, back and forth. And uh, this was during the Cold War, was going on and stuff, you know. They, so he was there waving, what are you boys doing out there? Get out of here. Bill said, we're going to get out of here. And he just shot up the air. <laughs> 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 he left. <laughs> but we, we, we picked up 99 cans back then. And got seven dollars a pair. We were rolling in money. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but there was ducks. I mean, I've seen some nights be three or four gun parties out there. You can see just see the flashes because they're on they're on corn. They're feeding on because the fishermen dumping corn over. Now until. Until the state of Maryland got really got real strict. And I know when Pat and all, all boys, that whole group gunning. Come on now. <laughs> I see the fire come out of the barrels at night. All night. And you get out there next day. And you talk with a flower garden with red. <laughs> but I mean, it, you did it because that was just the way of life. That's what you did. You know. Uh, because like um, Ronnie Adams, I mean, he's really found some history about all the gun and the amusement parks around. I mean, 
because people didn't have the entertainment stuff like that. They all worked in the city, and I used to always say, when I was young, up there in Latham and, and, and the Conway Dam, on Friday nights and Saturdays and Sundays, you couldn't find a rock to stand on for people dipping hair and fishing. And I used to say, that damn dumb Pennsylvania, what the hell are they, rain or shine in Maine? Or... And then I found out, when you go up there and you live in red houses, no yards or anything, and you just work everywhere, you wanted to get out of town. And that was their pleasure was fishing. And, you know, that's the same way in Baltimore. There was a lot of amusement parks right in Baltimore, a lot of, I mean, they were just local places where people made a living doing it because that's the only entertainment we had. But now you, you, you don't want to play anywhere you want. All right, Jimmy. We thank you.